As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. We've reached the end of another series of Bring Back V10s, and to get us over the finish line, we're tackling another top 10 debate. This time, we're arguing over the top 10 title-deciding races of the era. So regardless of whether it was a final round decider in the truest sense of the word, we've taken every race where the championship was sealed, no matter how early it was in the year, and our panel have picked their own top 10s from those 17 races. We then scored each individual top 10 using the current F1 point system. Unfortunately, the V10 one wouldn't work for us because it doesn't go down to 10th. Added those scores together and created an overall top 10, which our guests haven't seen yet, so they don't know the final result. So joining me, Glenn Freeman, to argue over the 10 best title deciding races of the V10 era are Ed Straw, Matt Beer and Ben Anderson. Naturally, there's no traditional opening question with this format, so I'm going to ask you all something a bit different, and I'll come to you first, Ben. Of the 17 races we all had to choose from, tell us one that as soon as you saw the list, you knew that was never going to be in the mix to make your top 10. Uh, there were several for me, uh, but I'm going to go... <laughs> Ruthless. <laughs> yeah, there are several that easily made this category, but I'll go with uh, France 2002. Uh, the reason being that that championship was no contest. It was settled with six races to go. No memory of that being at all exciting uh, or intriguing. So that instantly was binned off along with several others. I I thought, well, I thought France 02 was a good race, actually. Yeah, you know, Kimi Raikkonen nearly winning and Schumacher only claiming the title late on when Raikkonen goes off on oil. That was that was good drama. Yeah, but not not um not significant to to me the the title decider, it needs to be... I didn't consider so much about the race itself. It was more about the coming together of all the elements to make the season dramatic. And as that was one of the least dramatic seasons in the Bring Back V10s era, it was straight in my in my bin. I mean, it is utterly offensive that the championship was won in July. You know, yeah, we, exactly. We, we don't want that. Fortunately, we have so many races now that Max Verstappen couldn't do that if he, if he tried. <laughs> um, Matt, what was on your definitely not list? Hungary 2001. When I was trying to make the list, I was like, I've got no memory of that race whatsoever. And I rewatched <laughs> some highlights and had no memory of those highlights as soon as the highlights package had finished. It's 
the season was a non-season as well. I, I don't mind a dominant season for a narrative, you know, because it, it's impressive that someone's winning that much. But 2001 was such a kind of middling nothing season with Coulthard sort of mounting a title challenge, but not quite really. Did it, did, does anyone remember anything about 2001 apart from that one really good Juan Pablo Montoya race? I, I just don't think I do at all now. It's just the whole thing's gone. <laughs> no, I'm with, I'm with you on that. Uh, I had exactly the same experience. I couldn't remember anything about the race. I've watched the highlights and I can't remember anything about it now. Um, I will say... Uh, that Hungary 2001 was one of two races that uh, didn't get any votes. So uh, that let's see, let's see if Ed can complete the set though. Uh, Ed, which assuming you're not going to pick one we've already had, and assuming you didn't think, oh, they're all great, they were all in contention, which I know you're <laughs> capable of. Um, which race are you going for? Which one was was not really in contention? Well, they're all great and they're all in contention, so I didn't pick one. No, there, there was one that was quite easy to dismiss and that was actually the 95 Pacific Grand Prix. Not actually because it wasn't a good race, because it was a pretty good race actually, a good win from Schumacher, but because I focused on the title deciding the title clinching element and for 95, the moment the championship was clinched, not mathematically, but in reality, was when Hill shunted at the Nürburgring in the previous race. So that's like the championship winning moment in my mind, even though it wasn't. So the Pacific Grand Prix for 95, for that reason, kind of falls into the shadow. So I just don't really connect it with winning a championship. I'd put that whole season in the bin, personally. All of 1995. was a good season. <laughs> the only reason I do this podcast is to talk about 1995 occasionally. I would say that for me, the moment that championship was sealed was when Hill crashed out at the start of the German Grand Prix at Hockenheim. Um, that was, and that was also the moment where I went, oh, I'm done. I'm just going to support this Canadian guy in IndyCar and hope that he comes <laughs> over to F1. To be fair, I think there were quite a few moments with Williams and Hill in 95 that you could point yeah. to. They were quite regular through the season. Sadly. That's fair. What I will say, um, Pacific 95 uh, ended up 11th in the overall list. So it nearly made the cut, despite the fact what? that, as you can probably tell, Ed and Ben didn't vote for it. But Matt and I clearly liked it. Good race. Good race. Brilliant Schumacher drive. Absolutely impossible win, in theory. Yeah, lots of action. Busy, busy race on a slightly strange track. And very, very close. Missed out by two points wow. on making it in to the top 10. Ben's shaking his head. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Ben, partly your fault that it didn't make it in. So <laughs> you should be happy, really. <laughs> Schumacher, <laughs> Schumacher winning, it's why I hated it. It's just the, it's the typical of that season result, you know. Schumacher and Benetton turning around an impossible disadvantage compared to Williams somehow and me just shaking my head <laughs> going oh this hurts even more because the, now the championship is mathematically impossible for Damon to somehow rescue if Michael Schumacher winning a championship is your criteria for not including one you, you've really narrowed down your selection from the off Anyway, we'll find out in a moment how many Schumacher championships get in for Ben. As we've reached the end of the series, let's go old school and read out some of your uh, our recent five-star reviews. Thank you to everyone who reviews the show on whichever platform you listen on, including those where you can't leave a comment. And to those of you who email us to say if you could leave us a review, you would. Some of our recent reviewers on Apple Podcasts include Jamie Chattel, Matt Marv 01, Lee Trashed, uh, not Wow 28, Madhur, Crazy Pepper 6, V10 Loving Aiden, Renault Fan 08, Justin Shape, and Buttermilky. Uh, thank you so much for all your reviews and the comments you leave with them. Um, I, I read them all, just as a case with our email inbox, uh, even if I can't reply to all of you. 
Talking of emails, remember you can contact the show by writing to bringbackv10s at the-race.com. And if you're looking to spend the break between our series talking about the V10 era with like-minded people, then come to our community on Twitter or X or whatever you choose to call it these days. Check the link in the description of this episode to join in the fun. And as a special bonus for anyone who's in our community... On the day this episode is released in our main feed, we'll be posting a special discount code in there to get 20% off any orders at the race shop where you can get all kinds of merch, including several Bring Back V10's designs. So head to the community and we'll do a pinned post in there sharing the code and it will be valid for two weeks at shop.the-race.com. If you want to listen to more from Bring Back V10s over the coming weeks, then check out the Race Members Club. We'll be doing an exclusive Ask Us Anything episode for our members feed soon. And we'll also be releasing an uncut interview with IndyCar reporter Kurt Cavin, all about Nigel Mansell's 1993 season in America. We only heard snippets from that chat in the main episode, so there's lots more to hear in that conversation. There'll also be an interview with uh, Jean-Claude Migio, the man who designed the iconic high-nose Tyrrell 019. And we'll see if we can dig out some other previously unreleased interviews from our back catalogue for you as well. So to get all of that and much, much more from the race, head to the-race.com forward slash members club to sign up. Okay, that's the final set of plugs done for this series. Let's get stuck in to our top 10 debate. Okay, in at number 10, we have the 1998 Japanese Grand Prix. This was the day Mick Hakkinen secured his first championship, with Michael Schumacher famously stalling on the grid, then charging back through the field, only to suffer a puncture, while Hakkinen raced serenely out front to become McLaren's first world champion since Ayrton Senna in 1991. Ben had this highest, placing it sixth, uh, Matt had it eighth, Ed had it ninth, and I didn't include it in my top ten. Wow. So, Ben, as the person who rated this race highest, what is it that you like about this one so much? Okay, so my thinking about ranking title deciders, there are certain elements to me that the race, regardless of how interesting the race itself was, had to include. I want the jeopardy of not really knowing who's going to be champion for as long as possible, so the race being as close to the end of the season as possible was quite important. And the race itself had to have this element of, oh, I'm not not definitely sure early on that the outcome is going to be settled. So Schumacher charging from the back, that created that intrigue. Obviously, it runs out at the point at which he gets the puncture and, and it's bye-bye. But nevertheless, it's there for, the, for a good portion of it. I wanted controversy. This didn't have controversy, so that's why it's not particularly high in my own ranking. It's quite far down. Um, but it also had the monumental occurrence of a new champion. So um, a record being broken or um, somebody becoming champion for the first time, I think is quite a significant element in terms of making a title decider memorable 
uh, and important to me. So this race ticked a lot of the boxes, but it didn't tick every box. And some of the boxes it ticked, it didn't tick them enough. The, the way you were describing it there, you'd think it only just snuck in. It was, it was <laughs> sixth. Um, Ed, not quite so high for you. Uh, ninth. You gave you at least gave it some points, unlike me. I'll explain myself in a moment. But uh, why was this down the bottom for you of the ones you picked? Yeah, well, it's the lowest ranked of the actual last race deciders in my mind. And that's just because of the deflation of it, because you had the two title contenders set to fight it out. It wasn't quite winner takes all because Hackening could afford to finish second to Schumacher. And I think he'd won on countback with the way the points were. But just that stalling on the grid, although it did create some interest, it just took the sting out of the tail of it because it made it relatively easy. Yeah, there was a little bit of uh, of jeopardy going on, but obviously Schumacher then was out of the race after the uh, the Takagi Tuero collision created some debris for him to run over and pick up that puncture. So it was one that promised so much, but just lost that edge. And maybe if Hakkinen had retired and it would have been, can Schumacher get through to the points or whatever, it would have been a bit more memorable. But I just remember being a bit disappointed, not because I wanted Schumacher to win, or Hackenden to win particularly, but I just wanted a really grandstand finish. And I think it was just taken away. While that was a wow, he stalled moment, it was also a, ah, okay, this has actually slightly distorted this championship finale, which was a shame. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's that's partly why it didn't get him for me. It's, it's There was nothing, for the guy who won the championship, nothing dramatic happened. Hackenden just basically led from lights to flag. The Schumacher moments are memorable. It was, uh, I remember watching this race live. It was unbelievable when you saw the car sort of lurch forward and you're thinking, he stalled on the grid. And uh, the curse of the chrome helmet, of course. Um, and then his drive after that was magnificent. Uh, Hacken's did a great job out front and then the puncture brings it all to an end. So it just, it didn't have, it didn't have the the action. I think for Hakkinen, for me, there's something that had to happen to Hakkinen for this one to make it in for me. Uh, Matt, anything to add? Eighth place for you, so it picked up a handful of points. Yeah, it was one where it was quite a gap between me doing this list and then looking at this list for a second time. And it was the one where I thought, oh, did I put that a bit too high? I surprised myself with it a little (laughs) bit. But Schumacher's comeback drive, I thought was good enough that it did set up a bit of tension later. He wasn't going to catch Hakkinen. But at least it was in range of if he hadn't got the puncture, that McLaren had to not go bang. And yeah, McLaren was a bit fragile that season. I think the thing that really just got it into my top 10 at all was that element of new champion and also who the battle was between. Between McLaren and Ferrari had both gone a little well with no title. Ferrari a long time at this point. Whoever won that, it was going to mean an awful lot and be a really big story. So kind of on big story grounds of who it was between it gets in on the kind of always more on its promise than the reality of what actually happened. Cause although, like I say, Schumacher's comeback drive numerically was great. He was up to third by the time he had his puncture. An awful lot of people did jump out of his way. Eddie Irvine would have jumped out of his way later on. Um, Damon Hill did a good job, but not jumping out of his way. I remember that. That was one of his best Jordan drives. He didn't jump out of the way. <laughs> Ben's cheering. <laughs> one thing that really does stand out in this race that is worth everybody going and finding is that Tuero Takagi <laughs> collision I mentioned. I know you this is all, would say I that. know this is all about championships, but the Tuero Takagi one is what massive defenders of Prost think the 89 collision was with Tuero just coming from miles back. So uh, it's well worth having a bit of a look at it. So it just, just really spectacular moment and just very, very optimistic from uh, Tuero. And of course, it was really significant because it was what put Schumacher out indirectly. I would also say that in terms of what was at stake, I did look at the points and I think if Hakkinen had finished second to Schumacher, Schumacher would have won on countback because he had more third places that year than Hakkinen did. They would have had equal numbers of second places, I think. 
I think it was certainly very close. Let's make Ed do some live math. Yeah, well, I thought I thought it was uh, I thought Hackney could finish second on Countback, but if I can get the points up, give me one minute and keep talking, and I will come up with a definitive answer of which of us is wrong. We can play a fast forward noise that when we get to the point where Ed starts to the numbers. <laughs> no, he could. He could. I'll do. I'll save you a job, Ed. If Hackney had finished second in that race, then he would have had one more second place than Schumacher. So. I now need to revisit my ranking and drop it further down because I misread the numbers when I was doing my original ranking. Your, your argument's crumbling in front of your eyes. I think that's a good point to move on from Suzuka 98 before Ben rescores it. Uh, ninth place then uh, is the 1993 Portuguese Grand Prix. The day Alain Prost sealed his fourth and final world championship, while Michael Schumacher narrowly defeated him on the day to claim a second career win. It's also the weekend when Mika Hakkinen replaced Michael Andretti at McLaren and out-qualified Ayrton Senna at the first attempt. Uh, This was fifth in Matt's list, eighth for Ed. I had it tenth and Ben didn't include it. So, uh, Matt, this was in your top five. Why was Portugal 93 so high? Uh, okay. Well, as these lists have no official criteria, I do kind of mix and match the criteria in my head as we go along. And But probably the main one was just like, how, how dramatic was the whole weekend was probably my main factor. And okay, this was not a, a vintage title battle by any means. It was obvious Alan Prost was going to win this title pretty much as soon as he signed for Williams that season, uh, regardless of what Ayrton Senna and McLaren could do. Uh, yeah, such was the Williams domination and so obvious was it that we continued in 1993 but that weekend had so many storylines the Hakkinen thing the, a Lacey leading at a time when Ferrari really shouldn't have been leading leading a race um, driver market wise I think we did we did a bring back V10's episode on it early in the and the concept of this podcast and I'd forgotten so much about this race that that episode reminded me it was like wow that was an insane weekend imagine having a website and a YouTube channel then it was being phenomenal so I think the overall newsy drama and the fact it was a really decent unpredictable race in the opening laps you didn't see Michael Schumacher come through to win that at all and Alan Prost was getting by Prost standards very racy trying to pass him as well there, there was a lot more going on in that race than a lot of title deciders for me yeah I think uh I, I, I got this in for what you said, really. It's not about how Prost sealed the championship. It's the fact that it was a championship deciding race where lots happened. Um, and you're right. I, I think because because of the and Senna thing, people almost think that and led the start of that race and, and everybody forgets that Lacey did in the pretty rubbish 93 Ferrari. But Ben, you didn't, you didn't include it. So how close was it to getting in? It wasn't close at all. This was eliminated for me immediately because of uh, the thing Matt touched upon, it being a nailed-on championship for Prost pretty much from the start of the season, although Senna did his best to eke it out. For me, there was no tension in the settling of the title, so what happened in the individual race weekend, yeah, okay, it's a memorable race for the reasons you discussed, but it has no consequence in terms of the title and the championship being settled, so for me, I dismissed it out of hand because Prost was just walking and it was a walking to the title and it was just a matter of time. Men's rationale is completely sensible, but uh, I refute yes. it angrily because I love the Portuguese Grand Prix of 1993. Uh, you love that whole I season. I do, yeah, but I really love Portugal 93 as well. That moment Lacey sweeps around on the end. So why was it only eight? Because it didn't really have anything to do with the title and that was a driving <laughs> force you. in my criteria. So what it, Ben said. It, it sneaked in because it's just a race I really love and I just wanted it in the 10. But yeah, it, it's in there for, for all the reasons because of the, uh, the storylines and everything that was going on. 
on and Emmanuel Agnes. Betty uh, making one-off appearance is, for Jordan. I love that as well. This is nonsense. The Gerhard Berger moment when he had the active suspension failure coming out of the pits and shot across Derek Warwick's bowels. There's loads of stuff going on in that race. It's meant to be top 10 title deciders, not top 10 races where lots it's, of interesting stuff happens that's incidental yeah. to the championship Wh- being Top settled. 10 title deciders. Which yeah. part does this not, does this not qualify for? <laughs> Well, yeah, the title happened to be decided, but all the reasons being given for ranking it so high have nothing to do with the championship being set up. That's so, the beauty of the open criteria, though. Indeed, Matt's, yeah, Matt's yeah. got his hand up. I think Matt's about to dive in and remind us about what happened with Nigel Mansell around the time of that race as well. Surely, Matt, you want to celebrate that? <laughs> Don't care. Don't care. Something lacklustre compared to what Alex and Nazi did later. I don't know. Something like that. Um, <laughs> I don't mean that. He was probably celebrating his IndyCar championship with a with a brisket or something, yeah. wasn't he? <laughs> Nigel Mansell winning two world championships simultaneously or whatever it was that he liked to claim. A slightly dubious interpretation, but great achievement, dubious interpretation. Oh, so this... So I, I should be celebrating the fact that this is when Prost takes one of those titles away from him. I, I see I see your point. Uh, I was actually going to just... Re- so the other thing that brought it back up my list was even if it's an, a season where the champion identity is obvious if the person who becomes champion looks a bit racy and interesting and doesn't make a massive hash of clinching that title, then it came back up my ranking a bit. And so much of Alan Prost's late career, I just see him doing the bare minimum to achieve what he needed to achieve, which was his right at that point. I re- I'd forgotten, so I rewatched the race, quite how aggressive he was with Schumacher at the end. Schumacher obviously drove better to beat him in a Benetton still, but... I just that was a side of Prost you didn't see a lot in nineteen ninety three and I enjoyed it for that as well. Yeah, that battle's that battle's really good. I when rewatching it recently though, I did think, okay, Estriel's hard to pass, very narrow, sort of tighter circuit than you sort of remember, because you associate with the fast corners at each end of the main straight. But I did kind of watch it going with that much of a car advantage, and Matt won't like this, but Nigel Mansell would have got past Schumacher. Uh, in that battle. <laughs> and I, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Let's move on to number eight then. We have the 1999 Japanese Grand Prix where Hakkinen made it to back-to-back titles for McLaren, this time defeating a subdued Eddie Irvine in the year Michael Schumacher had broken his leg at Silverstone. Matt and I didn't put this in our top tens. Ben had it seventh and uh, Ed's vote did the heavy lifting here as he placed it fifth. So, Ed, tell us, what was so good about Japan 99? Yeah, well, I massively privileged any genuine last round decider in this list, so that automatically got it up fairly high. Obviously, Japan 98 suffered a bit because of that deflation. The thing I like about Japan 99 is it's just a straightforward, pure title decider, isn't it? Mick Hakkinen won, Eddie Irvin was a bit lacklustre, the championship was decided, there was no great controversy, which does harm it a little bit, but I quite like the fact it was just a straightforward race, and that moment when uh, Hakkinen leaps into the lead at the start as well, because uh, Schumacher had a pretty bad start, is quite memorable. So it, it's it, it, for me, it ticks a lot of the boxes without having any particular aspect to it to really get your blood pumping and really excited. But it was just nice and straightforward. And people have to remember, obviously, this was after a spell where title deciders had been pretty controversial for the most part. We'd had that run of uh, of uh, collisions. Obviously, not every single one in that way. But it was actually, in some ways, a bit of a palate cleanser to have a straightforward one. And I think everybody would agree that the... Uh, that the, the the best man won in that in that head to head. Although Irvine put together a, a decent season, I think Hakkinen was the more worthy champion that day. And then, of course, the one bit of intrigue was all the Schumacher performance and people saying, "Oh, did Schumacher not really worry too much? Obviously, come back from the broken leg. Was he quite happy to finish second? Yes, <laughs> that's one of those things that people have uh, suggested. So it creates a little bit of uh, speculation and intrigue attached to that one as well. 
you had it fifth. You said that <laughs> yeah. you said that it didn't get the blood pumping, but it's fifth. <laughs> yep. So you well, must take a lot to get your blood pumping. Th- this is this is top ten title deciders, isn't it? And it was a proper decider. So I that's just what it why it got put up there. It was a proper decider. Yeah, I agree with the logic. I I think ninety nine was a memorable season, and you had. Just that the Irvine factor dropped it down for me. I think a bit of anti-Eddie Irvine bias. Although childhood me thought it would have been really spectacular for him to be the first Ferrari champion for eons. Yeah, that would be hilarious. Yeah, I, kind, I really wanted that to happen just for that reason. And and, and the weird tyre stuff, you know, when he pitted, was it the Nürburgring where he pitted and there were no tyres or you know various things where I just thought, oh, Ferrari don't want him to win it either. And then he's got a chance and he just messes up and ends up behind Panis at the start yeah. of the race. And you just think, oh, Eddie, like this is this is it. This is the moment. Come on, make this one of the best title deciders ever. And he just is nowhere near good enough and finishes miles off the top two. And you think, okay, well done, Mika. Yeah, you're champion again. That's good. But, you know, Irvine, he, he summed up why he was never Formula One championship material in that race but the childhood version of me would have loved him to win it somehow there was one big storyline that we haven't mentioned which was the fact that ferrari did win the constructors championship that day their first title since 83 so it was significant from that perspective but again the constructors championship the, the only time people say the constructors championship is more important or more satisfying is when they have not won the drivers championship and they want to talk it up either that or if you're the accountant or your bonus is contingent on the constructors championship so that that was quite a significant achievement as well after all those years no tuggy midfield collision you want to mention to bolster that one up the there's, there's nothing that's uh, springing to mind in uh, in no. that one it's the race where Damon Hill parked a healthy car to end his F1 career yeah, we, let's not talk about that uh, I was going to say that <laughs> that was that was a tremendously uh, tame ending to uh, to his career there's there's no defence of that one but uh, yeah it was, a, it was an interesting race the um, big gap for Eddie Irvine to, uh, to the top two though very big yeah, we'll uh, we'll unpick that uh, in an episode uh, one day. I think most most of our listeners have probably heard the uh, the Eddie Irvine special floor excuse, uh, Matt. So you and I, we didn't include this. Uh, let's see if, if if we agree on our reasoning. What? Why didn't it make the cut for you? I think mainly because my reaction to the whole thing wasn't like a oh tile decider. It was like oh thank goodness for that that Irvine didn't win it. Not because not because I think Eddie Irvine was a bad F one driver or he had a bad season. Just uh, he was not world champion caliber uh, as a driver. I don't think. And it was a real relief that Hakkinen won it, not Irvine on those grounds. And it was an, the race was a non contest. Irvine was off the pace all weekend. Schumacher, you know, in retrospect, didn't particularly look like like he was trying. It, he did his trying at Sepang, made his point. He could have won the championship. And did Ferrari some big favours, and then, yeah, relatively chilled out at Suzuka. He did. He did help Irvine at the start, though, didn't he? He moves across and delays uh, yeah. everyone a bit. I think, but it, yeah, it's sort of maybe a half-hearted so- effort. Like I've done my bit with my Schumacher chop, and now I'm off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and to be honest, when I, re-watch, I was re-watching highlights package and stuff to refresh my memory of these, the thing that stood out for me more than anything was like, hey, where did those prosts come from? Being so high up the grid and, and briefly third, that was that was mad. But no, it just wasn't a lot that really got me excited in this race. It was just a case of, ah, oh, phew, we don't have to spend the whole winter going, Eddie Irvine's world champion. Which now, <laughs> all these years on, I think I'd find more hilarious at the time I would have felt it was a huge injustice. I, I wouldn't have minded it. I, I like seeing different champions and, uh, and I, just the fact that it would have been the guy, the guy who was paid to be second fiddle to the guy getting paid all the money uh, doing it would have would have made me laugh. But it didn't make the cut for me just because, yeah, as a 
as a race for the championship and Hakkinen's race, again, like 98, was a non-event really. Schumacher wasn't interested in, uh, in, in giving, giving Mika a hard time. And uh, I always think back to uh, the French Grand Prix of this year. If uh, I think Schumacher had problems towards the end of it, if Ferrari had let Irvine overtake Schumacher in France, if they'd known Michael was going to break his leg at the next race, Schumacher could have made Irvine champion by moving over uh, to give him second place. And I think that would have been, I think Michael would have done that through the most tightly clenched, gritted teeth <laughs> you've ever seen. So I, I think overall, everybody except Eddie Irvine was happy with this outcome. I think Ferrari and Schumacher were quite satisfied with the idea of let's let's win a constructors championship and and be happy about that and and Michael can say well you know I did my bit and yeah everybody came way happy and then got what they wanted the year after as well. I should say as well there was some controversy connected to the title decider not at Suzuka but of course Hakkinen and McLaren had already won the championship for a brief period after Malaysia when the Ferraris were disqualified. Then you had the whole appeal and the tolerances and all that kind of thing. So there was a little bit of, of intrigue around that. But it does mean that this was kind of the second race in a row where it seemed like uh, McLaren had, had clinched everything. So it's... Uh... There was an atmosphere heading into the weekend, certainly. When, when we, We've done Sepang 99 already and a lot of the storylines from that weekend do kind of bleed into the start of Suzuka 99 as well. So although the race was flat, I think as a weekend, it was very tense, particularly between McLaren and Ferrari. Yeah, if it had actually been settled with disqualifications and stuff at Sepang, I would have put that one way up the list, even though it would have been a pretty poor way of deciding a championship just because of the drama level. Um, But uh, sort of on that subject, I used to have in mind this race as being the ultimate proof that no one outside like you say the people getting the bonuses really cares about the constructors championship because it wasn't like Ferrari going okay look look we've definitely won the title now Um, but I think now 2021 is the ultimate proof that um, the constructors championship can easily get ignored when um, when your driver hasn't won looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. In seventh place, it's another Japanese Grand Prix. We've got a few of them still to come as well. Uh, You won't be surprised to hear. This time, it's 1996, when Damon Hill gave Murray Walker a lump in his throat. He took the lead. He stayed there. And Damon Hill exits the chicane and wins the Japanese Grand Prix. And I've got to stop because I've got a lump in my throat. Again, Matt and I Matt and I didn't pick this one, uh, but Hill fans Ben and Ed did. Uh, ben only had it eighth, though, while Ed had it fourth. Um, so before we hear from them, let's go the other way. Matt, was this one close to making your top ten? 
No, no, it wasn't. Me neither. Um, no, not at all. I thought I thought Jacques Villeneuve was really impressive, apart from that terrible start of this race. Dreadful he made it start, slightly, wasn't it? Really yeah, bad. So bad, wasn't it? Basically, got himself sideways on the grid. And I thought Gerhard Berg made the opening laps a bit interesting as he bumped into Hill. Well, that when you watch that back from the helicopter shot, that is terrifying. I don't know how he didn't hit him. Yeah, indeed. Uh, that that was like, but I feel like that was really the, the moment of title tension. And though Villeneuve's comeback drive was decent enough before his wheel fell off, it never looked like it was going to really achieve anything. It, it, even though I wasn't a Hill fan, I was rooting for Villeneuve at that point. I was happy enough to see Damon win it. It was quite an emotional thing. He's, he was clearly a, a likable bloke who deserved that title by that time. But it's not a classic I'd watch back many times. No, um, for me, this, this wasn't in contention. Again, just because the guy who won the championship drove around at the front the whole time with no jeopardy. It's, it's not the Villeneuve factor. I, I'm a bit like you. Yes, I was rooting for Jack, but I'd been a Hill fan before that and I was still happy to see Damon get a championship. So I, in no way did the did the result tarnish this one for me. It just wasn't exciting enough. But Ed, fourth place for you. Um, fill us in. What, what did we miss? <laughs> oh, it's primarily, an, it's primarily a nostalgia pick for me as I was a Hill fan. Obviously, the the actual way the decider played out, see Villeneuve ending up not really in the, in the mix properly, meant that it wasn't a particularly uh, dramatic one from that perspective. And then obviously the retirement took any jeopardy away but it, it was just a, a great moment having followed Hill through those years so yeah it, it's I sort of got the full Matt Beer on this one and remembered my uh, my inner fan for, for that I mean the one thing I will say is obviously because it was a last race title decider which generally tend to get a pretty good ranking for me in my choices there that that does give it a little bit of extra but just the whole thing and you know getting up early to watch it as a as a Hill fan etc just just really sits in my mind and it's just a, a great moment. But yeah, I'm not going to make a, a technical argument for it. Let's say it's more of an emotional argument. So Ben, given that you only had it eighth, does that mean Ed has out Damon Hill fanned you on this one? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm almost lost for words. <laughs> fourth? But, so they're fourth and fifth in his ranking, no blood pumping going on. So the top three... I mean, title deciders, what, what, last race title deciders. Those they're going to be That's snooze fest. I mean, I I wanted <laughs> no, nothing, not, much much more fun than if the championship was already done and dusted at the last race. Yeah, I agree with that, but I still don't know how we've ended up so far apart. I obviously wanted to put this really high, and the only reason it's on my ranking really is nostalgia and the fact it was the last race. It was a proper final race decider, but I accept, you know, it was a boring race. Once Villeneuve was out of the picture, Hill walked it. So it's it's made my list for nostalgia reasons, basically. Go Damon. Go Damon, indeed. Let's move on then to sixth place, where we have one of the most famous F1 title deciders in history, the 1990 Japanese Grand Prix. This is, of course, the day Ayrton Senna took out Alain Prost at the start, claiming revenge for what Prost did to him the previous year, but also in protest a pole position not being moved to the clean side of the track. This snuck into Matt's list in ninth. Ed had it seventh. Ben had it fourth. And I didn't pick it. Now, I'll explain myself in a moment. But Ben, once you've wiped that shocked look off your face, <laughs> what made Suzuka 90 feature so highly for you? It's the controversy. So for me, if there's a really almost era-defining moment of controversy, something that lasts forever in the minds of the collective F1 fandom, then it gets a massive upvote for me. And 
there's probably no more infamous incident in terms of title protagonists colliding this one, Senna deliberately taking out Prost as revenge for the previous year, also because of the pole position argument the day before, starting on the wrong side of the grid. You, you just you, When you think of title deciders, this is probably one of the top two or three instances that immediately springs to mind. So for that, it vaults really high in my rankings. Obviously, two great drivers going at it as well. Um, even though it wasn't the final race and even though obviously the race itself was then completely a, a footnote to that incident, the incident itself just dwarfs everything else for me. So before we hear from uh, Matt and Ed on this, I'll explain why I didn't pick it. My criteria really was take each race and then just go, how entertaining was it as a race? And because, although it's controversial, because the, the championship was decided at the first corner in in a a controversial but rubbish way. It's an appalling piece of driving from Senna. Um, and then the rest of the race is rubbish. Um, the Williamses <laughs> are not at it. Uh, Mansell ends up driving around uh, on his own out front for a while. It becomes a race of attrition um, that's won by Nelson Piquet. You've got the great story of a Benetton 1-2 and Roberto Moreno on the podium uh, filling in for Alessandro Nanini. But it, I did watch it back and I just thought, this isn't, this is, okay, the championship's been decided, but this isn't an interesting race for me at all. Uh, Matt, only ninth for you. Uh, same reasons or different reasons? Yeah, pretty much the same. I did, uh, this is another one I looked at and thought, have I, have I gone too low on this one? I wouldn't disagree. The race is just rubbish from the first corner onwards, but it does it does have a lot of iconic moment points. And I don't really take any of those points away for that iconic moment being terrible. I love a good story. This was a brilliant story, as were things like the Benetton 1 2, a Guri Suzuki on the podium. Great. Oh, and something bad happened to Mansell. So that should put it on my list, but um, it, it, it didn't really. I just, yeah. I'm not. I didn't mark it down because Senna did something a bit terrible. I kind of, if anything, marked it up because that terrible thing was so attention grabbing. But good man, about 52, 52 laps were just like, Meh, really, weren't they? Yeah, exactly. I'll admit I'm being slightly contrary there, and it is almost a protest at what Senna did. Uh, Ed, seventh for you. Is that because, as uh, Matt just mentioned, there was a LaRousse on the podium? It is one of my all-time favourite podiums in F1, P.K. Moreno, Aguri Suzuki. What a podium that was. Yeah, uh, so actually I quite like the race. I have quite a fondness for it for that reason. But yeah, it, it wasn't a final race to Cider, so that hurt it a little bit. Obviously it had the huge story it's still talked about today, but it was also quite a straightforward and it's it happens and it's gone, isn't it? It's happened immediately was the, uh, the famous Murray Walker line or words to that effect. So... Yeah, it, it meant that it was always going to be fairly well-ranked behind a bunch of last race deciders just because of that whole storyline and the controversy. But, this yeah, is it, amazing, I think is what he said, it, wasn't it? <laughs> exactly, yeah. So so it, it's more a moment than a, than a race almost that's just locked in your mind. But it's still one of the biggest things that that's talked about in Formula 1 today. I did actually think about putting this in another similar one, basically as the top two, because I thought, well, they are probably the most famous, but when I juggle my criteria, they shifted around a bit, but an amazing moment and very, you know, obviously incredibly questionable from Senna, but there's a small part of me that says, well, your willingness to do that says something about you. You know, that's a pretty big thing to, uh, to create the situation where either Prost yielded or, or that happened at those speeds. So, uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm not going to kind of, it's not really about condemning or celebrating Senna in that moment. It's more what it says about that drive to win rightly or wrongly. Created an incredible situation. 
I'll, uh, I'll share a story for you about this race. Uh, here at the race, we uh, we work with the photographer Paul-Henri Caillé, who covered F1 for, for years, as did his dad um, before him. And he's got a picture on his uh, website. He's F1 Photo on, on Twitter. And on his website, which is f1-photo.com, he's got a picture of Senna and Prost not long before the collision. And I've said to him uh, when we, we were looking for pictures of that, I said, do you have any shots after that frame uh, of when they finally collided? And he said he didn't because he had the wrong lens on. So once they got closer, he, he couldn't get it. And, a re- and he said only one photographer of all the photographers at the first corner, only one photographer had the right lens to get a clear crisp shot and, and, and framed correctly and all that because all the all the snappers are basically they're shooting the cars coming off the grid and running towards the corner so you need a long long lens the only photographer who had the right lens was Ayrton Senna's official personal photographer so obviously the theory goes that maybe he'd been tipped off that uh, you might want to get a shot of what happens when we get to turn one anyway Let's move on to the top half. And in fifth place, we have the 2000 Japanese Grand Prix. I promise there are some non-Suzukas in this list, but we do have a few more still to come. The 2000 race was a classic Michael Schumacher, Mika Hakkinen head-to-head, with Schumacher jumping Hakkinen in the pit stops to finally end Ferrari's Drivers' World Championship drought. This is the first race in the list that, that we all picked I had it fourth, Matt had it sixth, while Ben and Ed were less impressed. They had it ninth and tenth, respectively. Uh, And I have to say, the the bottom half of the list was so tightly congested that if you take away the 12 points this race got from me, it would fall out of the overall top 10 entirely. And uh, Aida95 that we discussed at the beginning would have made it in. Boo! Hooray! So, Ed, tell us first... How did this race only just sneak in for you? Well, the fact that it was the penultimate race counted against it. I think that was one of the big things in that it was... A- I think that gets forgotten, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. kind of... all There's a, quite a few of these Suzuka races, actually. Your kind of instant reaction is, oh, that was the last race. That's, but actually, often it wasn't. And so I think it had a little bit less edge to it. If this had been the last race... And then Schumacher obviously drove really well in that race, really good when he had to work for it. I think it was in the second stops, he, he jumped Hackenden. So it's a proper duel. I think that would have added to it, but it wasn't. So for me, I felt it had to be in because it was the first driver's championship since Jody Schechter in 1979. And obviously, uh, actually, I was about to say, you know, it's easy to forget how long a drought Ferrari had had. But of course, today we're in that same situation. We're so catching I imagine, up, aren't we? I, I imagine, yeah. you know, you don't actually need to think back too far to, to <laughs> reveal how... Uh, how those endless Ferrari failures kind of mount up over the years. So it was big from that perspective. But yeah, just it was a relatively procedural thing in the way it worked out, even though it was a good race. So I felt it needed to be in there, but I couldn't really make an argument for it going much higher up. For me, um, this is a kind of race that actually, on paper, I didn't like in the refueling era. I didn't like when they just, they all right, they drove around flat out. That was great. And then the, the action happened during the pit stops. It was why I never liked refueling but over time the idea of Hakkinen and Schumacher flat out with the championship on the line it, it's gone up in my in my estimation and I like championship deciders where the title rivals are battling with each other whatever, whatever the, the drama is around them they're, they're both fighting for something on the day roughly on the same piece of track uh, that moved it up 
for me. Before we hear why Matt had it sixth, uh, Ben, you only had it ninth. What were, what were the reasons? Same as Ed? Yeah, I kind of broadly agree with both of you, actually. Um, Ed's criteria is similar to my own. It, I felt it had to be in there, but it's kind of top of my title deciders that weren't the final race and weren't particularly controversial. And the reason it's top of those is because of the things you mentioned about it being a flat-out battle between two drivers at the peak of their powers, you know, building through 98, 99. You've got the brilliant qualifying battle the day before and then Ferrari strategically overturning McLaren in the race. So a really good race and one of the better ones among the title deciders. But that element was low in my criteria in terms of deciding and because it was a race early, it drops down. But a monumental occurrence as well. Obviously, Schumacher becoming the first driver's champion for Ferrari for ages means it's a, it's a big deal. So yeah, it sneaks in, but not quite as high as as you felt it was because I didn't place so much emphasis on the quality of the race. For me, although I've put quite a few high up in the list for, because of quality of race or, or amount of madness around the world or big storylines, I put extra weight on this because like you hinted, Ben, everything that built up to it, this was the end of a massive storyline. This was two decades of Ferrari failure. This was Schumacher and Ferrari missing out multiple times in strange or contentious ways. This was Schumacher redeeming her, himself perhaps to people who'd started to get frustrated or had for many years been frustrated with the, the, the dubious elements of his driving, but now he had delivered a, a title for Ferrari after all these years. And you, I, I had not been born when Ferrari last won a driver's title. Uh, so at this point, and it didn't, the, so the drought didn't mean much to me until I saw it end. And then I was like, ah, okay. Actually seeing how Ferrari fans, seeing how Italy are reacting to this, this is big. I do slightly get it. For most of the time I was getting into F1, Ferrari was um, finding ways to embarrass itself. Whereas now actually now it's become a champion again. I get it. So that, and like you say, it was a tense race. I like the fact that Schumacher, it was the laps in the drizzle that made a difference, I think, wasn't it? Where Schumacher actually really showed what he what he could do and overturned Hackner's advantage. So I've got a lot of respect for how he won that title. And I think it was so significant for F1. So it, even though it wasn't the greatest race, I don't even, I can't remember what happened to anyone who wasn't Schumacher and Hacken in that race. It was, it's a significant one. Although this is slightly incidental, it also gave me a slightly different view of Schumacher having obviously grown up following Damon Hill and been behind him for so many years. I saw Schumacher partly as the enemy, but also as this kind of robotic individual who was just relentless and unemotional. And then he wins the championship and he's basically crying on the team radio I didn't really think that side of him had come through very well in public before. And it was like a massive outpouring for him. And I kind of, I kind of thought, oh yeah, he does care on a kind of subliminal level. He's not just this machine that, uh, that wins and crushes everybody relentlessly with a completely unemotional approach. He's human after all. Uh, right. Fourth place and nearly 30 points ahead of fifth but just missing out on our podium places is the 1989 Japanese Grand Prix, part one of the Senna Prost saga, 88 doesn't count, uh, with a race long scrap coming to an end with Prost turning in on Senna at the chicane. Then Senna rejoins, pits for a new nose, passes Alessandro Nanini for the win, only to be excluded after the race for cutting the chicane when he got bump started after the collision with Prost. Uh, listener John Hayden will be happy to hear us talking about this. He's been asking me when we're going to do an episode on this race for what feels like years now. Um, John, I promise you it's coming soon. That's all I'll say. 
I had this second, Matt had it third, Ben had it fifth, and Ed only had it sixth. Uh, Matt, this is on your personal podium. So why was that? Because <laughs> uh, the seismic quality of it, I think. And it was a, it was a tense race all the way through. And the oddity and controversy of the ending with Senna fighting back and it turning out to be worthless. I love the idea of a Nanini and a pair of Williams drivers podium in that 89 as well. That appeals to my underdog result um, radar too. So yeah, I just found there's lots to, lots to like about this from just a, both a final outcome and a huge storyline point of view. And it was a tense race all the way through. So it didn't, it didn't fall down on, on many criteria at all for me. That's that's the thing for me. The difference between this and ninety. Yes, they're both center cross collisions, but it's a it's a great race up to this point. The whole race is on F1 TV, or I'm sure you can find it somewhere else uh, if you want to. Um, and it's it's incredible. It, Prost drives in the first half of the race. Prost drives in a way that we don't really associate with Prost, and he said that he decided I'm going to go for it. I'm going to pull the pin. Center, I think, once he gets his head around that, is then able to really back in, and it's just. It's those two going flat out for the, with the world championship on the line. It comes back to what I said before. The, the title contenders are just going at it. Obviously, they're in equal, or, or Prost, may not, Prost may disagree, but they're in equal machinery. Um, then there's a collision. Then there's still more drama after that involving one of the title protagonists as well. Um, I, I thought it was superb. But Ed, only sixth for you, so I guess you disagree. Well, not entirely disagree insofar as there was a version of this list where I had it number one. That was if I'd, that's if I'd gone more for a I just forgot to send it. I sent the wrong one. Exactly. Well, I was still sort of zeroing in on the criteria and I think because it wasn't uh, a last race and because it wasn't uh, uh, a sort of clean decider almost, maybe that, that counted against it. Although I think, yeah, the fact that it wasn't that last race was, was the key thing. But it's just an incredible storyline across the board. And I do like the fact Nanini won the race as well. So there's a lot to like about the race. So I wouldn't say putting it six is particularly a negative because this, I think, is probably the one that most F1 fans, if you are asked about a title decider, it's certainly one of the two or three that the mind would go straight to, I guess, depending on their age. So yeah, it's it's just that because I went away from the, uh, from, from the more pure analysis of how much controversy there was. But yeah, it, it could have been it could have been P1. I could even have been massively po-faced about the whole thing and said, oh, it can't even be in the top 10 anyway because it's a collision and that's all wrong and then knocked out all the collision ones. But yeah, I avoided doing that. So P6 for me, I think, was a reflection just of the the final criteria I decided on. Penultimate race, of course, rather than the last one. I think this is one of the races where my criteria meshes best with yours and Matt's, Glenn, because the <laughs> race was dramatic the incident didn't happen until the key incident between the protagonists. So there's some controversy. That's why it's high up my rankings Some proper controversy happened quite late on. You've got the whole background of the 89 season and the two protagonists falling out. What lets it down for me is that the incident itself is a bit lame. It's kind of a clumsy prost attempt to shut the door not way prost's too late. finest work. No, you can tell he's not a pro at driving dirty <laughs> because it's just you know, almost doesn't work. And then they kind of comedically come to a stop. And then the controversy afterwards in terms of Senna getting back going and then being disqualified, the result not being really settled properly just on the track at the flag, that downvotes it for me. There's there's a purity in 
Japan 90 being bang out at the first corner, no questions that just, and as well as it being obviously more spectacular, that slightly elevated that one for me. But yeah, Japan 89 right up there because it's another iconic moment in the history of Formula One, unforgettable. One reason I did pause a little bit when ranking this was because it wasn't a last round decider. And also it wasn't even just that. It was like, now I do find drop scores hard to work out in my head. So I might've got this completely wrong because I didn't follow this race live at the time. I wasn't quite into F1 at the age of nine at that oh, point. Painful, isn't it? Painful. Drop scores are rubbish. I don't, I, whatever happened in this race, Prost was basically going to be champion anyway. He was just going to do it in Adelaide rather than Suzuka from what I can, how I can figure out the drop scores and, and the standings. Senanese to properly put him in the wall or something a couple of times to turn this one around. So in theory, he it <laughs> <laughs> yeah true um in theory that should downgrade it because it, it wasn't a, a that exciting a title clincher in itself in terms of how the championship was decided but that gets completely erased because of the drama these two created with colliding and how they regarded it afterwards so it, it's one where they created a legend that is much bigger than the on paper really quite boring maths around it Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Okay, we're into the top three now. And in third place, narrowly defeating Suzuka 89, but a long way back from our top two, is the 2003 Japanese Grand Prix. This was the day Michael Schumacher fumbled around in the pack while Rubens Barrichello upheld Ferrari honour by winning the race, keeping Schumacher's title rival Kimi Raikkonen at bay to deny Kimi the victory he'd have needed to have any chance of claiming the title. Uh, this was only fifth on my list. Matt had it fourth, Ed had it third, and Ben had it second. So, Ben, the second best title decider of the era. Tell us why. Well, because for me, this had almost everything that I want from a title, side, title decider, except the, con the controversy. You had dramatic denouement to an exciting season, a three-way title fight that obviously had petered out to two by then, but only a couple of races before Montoya was in contention. I've got massive nostalgia for this season as well because it came amid that run of overwhelming Schumacher dominance and suddenly we had this opportunity that not one but two drivers might possibly beat him. Okay, it didn't come to pass. That was upsetting. But then you then had the final race where he just keeps messing it up. He's trying to come through. He has these clumsy incidents that you just don't 
you do associate with Schumacher in title deciders, but normally he's driving into the people that he's trying to beat to the championship, <laughs> not some random drivers in the middle of the field. So even though Barrichello's doing the job of the number two driver and Raikkonen never looks like he's going to get the job done, you still don't know until quite near the end that Raikkonen isn't suddenly going to become champion. I was desperate for him to become champion, so I was on the edge of my seat for this one. And then just Schumacher messing it up, I loved watching that because he was so relentless during my childhood watching F1. So for me, soft spot for the season and therefore for that race. And the only reason it's not number one is because it's just not got the controversy of the iconic title deciders. It would have been uh, it would have been higher than fifth for me had Raikkonen won the title. I think it gets marked down for me because Schumacher clung on. Only fourth for you, Matt. Any particular reason for that? Uh Possibly because it lacked a title deciding collision, really. <laughs> Michael Schumacher and Takuma Sato didn't do it for you. <laughs> uh, if they'd been equal on points going into the race, yeah, absolutely. But um, <laughs> no, on those guys. No, that, it, it was my favourite of the ones where the outcome was kind of, well, one obvious and two not settled with a massive, what we'd now class as very clickable drama. Um, I loved it as a race. I thought uh, Montoya was superb in it. I thought Fernando Alonso was superb in it as well, hanging on with Barrichello for ages. Montoya put a move on Barrichello into Spoon on the first lap and was leading when his car failed. So there's lots for, they're two of my favourite drivers at the time, loads for me to enjoy. Schumacher could be really inept in a title decider, couldn't he? Just like, whether it was like doing something thoroughly dodgy at the front or just going, or just going, and battering into everybody. (laughs) It's just, just, yeah, not great. But I liked the mess of it. I think, the fact that Raikkonen never looked like he was actually going to be able to pull it off and do enough to defeat Schumacher, even when Schumacher was driving quite badly, took a bit of the fizz out of it compared to the absolute legendary epics that are the top three in my list. So Ed, third place on our list, third place on your list. Are you sitting there feeling massively vindicated? <laughs> exactly. This is one that we've got right collectively for once. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, my, my reasoning is very similar to Ben. I'd just add that... I like the fact that it had a good storyline in terms of the two protagonists, the the Schumacher-Ferrari combo that was just winning everything. And then this emerging Kimi Raikkonen plus the old McLaren that wasn't meant to be used that season that he was uh, getting consistent results in. So there was a bit of an all-next-generation excitement as well to it. So I, I really liked it. It was a proper last-round decider. And yeah, of course, the, the Schumacher <laughs> peril throughout that race was very dramatic. And even once he got up to eighth place, which is what he needed to be absolutely sure of it, there was still always that little frisson of excitement. What might happen? Could he have another problem? Could Rubens Barrichello retire? So yeah, it's just a really, really good, just a really, really good title decider that ticks a lot of boxes. Yeah, it doesn't have the collision or anything, or at least not a collision between title protagonists, but I quite like the purity of that for some of them as well. Bonus vote for Jacques Villeneuve being off the grid too, for me. <laughs> oh, well, obviously that got it marked down. Um, imagine imagine if uh, if Villeneuve had been the BAR that Schumacher had driven into. Oh. It got marked up then. Um, anyway. That'd been hilarious. Delicious. Yeah, let's move on to our top two. And this was close. While Japan 03 had 55 points across all of our votes, First and second had 86 and 80 respectively. So they were a long way clear of the rest and narrowly missing out on the overall win. Let's have a listen. And that looks, Schumacher's off. Schumacher's lost time. Hill goes by. 
Oh, out, out goes Schumacher. The Germany's out of the Australian Grand Prix, and Damon Hill only has to keep going to be world champion of 1994, but can he keep going? Because he hit Schumacher's car, and if Damon Hill has to retire and you see smoke pouring off the wheel, that will mean that Schumacher will be world champion. What an incredible development. That is, of course, the 1994 Australian Grand Prix, where Michael Schumacher and Damon Hill collided after an incredible pursuit in the first half of the race, and Williams stand in Nigel Mansell to Matt's joy went on to win on the day. Ben and I had this one third. Ed and Matt had it top of their list. Ed, you can go first before Matt tells us how great it was to see Mansell win one more time. Why was this your number one? <laughs> yeah, I just went for the uh, partly the uh, the emotional and nostalgic side of it. I really remember it. Well, obviously because of Jean-Denis Delatraz's F1 debut in the LaRousse, but so, <laughs> no, um, obviously because it was the Hill Schumacher thing, obviously a Hill fan and... There was something quite special when you were uh, you know, younger and watching these races, getting up early to watch it. Obviously, the outcome wasn't what I wanted, but it was such an incredible race. Obviously, even before the collision, it was a really intense race, really, really going at it. And there was the feeling just about anything could happen in that. And you've got the drama of the collision, the drama of the, oh, can they do anything about Hill's car? Well, obviously not with the big kink in the suspension. And Patrick yeah, Head gave just, it a go, though. He did. He gave it a good shake in me. Give yeah, it a shake. Pit, straighten it out. You'll be see fine. See what happens. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was. Uh, it, it just ticked all the boxes from uh, from that perspective. And yeah, there was that point where we thought, oh well, Hill will win it because his car's all right. Oh no, it isn't. So yeah, it just it just had everything. And it was actually quite a good storyline even after that. Nigel Mansell getting his last F1 win. Gerhard Berger actually could have won that race, but he made a, a little error that uh, that cost him. So yeah, there, there was just so much going on in it. And yeah, it just tipped it over to number one for me because I was. A Hill fan, so there was a little bit of a, a the, the young fan still there inside my mind somewhere uh, boosted that one up for that reason. But it just ticks all those boxes, and it's the, the one thing it will say is although the way that the title was won by Schumacher was not entirely correct, if we want to put it that way, the outcome was was correct. I probably wouldn't have said that in 1994, but clearly Schumacher was the better driver. To me, it has a little bit in common with 2021 when Max Verstappen won the championship in that he was the better driver over the season compared to Hamilton, in my opinion, anyway. But the way that it was won was not entirely correct. Similar thing at Adelaide wasn't right the way the collision happened, but the right winner overall in the end. So yeah, ticks all the boxes for me. Called yourself a Damon Hill fan and you have this title decider as number one. <laughs> yeah, it's massively that memorable. That is outrageous. Massively memorable. It's all massively part of the memorable. story. It doesn't have to be number one, though. But Ben, is that why it's not your number one? Because, because Damon lost? Partly. Uh, also <laughs> because the result was settled mid-race, you know, the championship. You, you didn't need to watch the rest of the race to know, and I did have to watch it crying. <laughs> no, I, don't think I, was I was gutted. Um, so it's very high on my list because of all the reasons discussed. You know, it's it's dramatic. Final race, there's a controversial collision. There's a nostalgia element. This is my first season watching Formula One properly. So I was up early, glued, nose inches away from the TV screen, following every lap, every movement. Obviously, massive drama. But yeah, as a Damon Hill fan, so disappointing to see him even if he didn't deserve the championship that year, to be taken out in that way when he would have won the championship gutting. And so as a Hill fan, I could, I wouldn't have put this one number one anyway, objectively, but emotionally, certainly not. So I'm baffled by Ed's decision. And Damon <laughs> did drive brilliantly well 
on the day. You know, he 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 forced yeah. Schumacher into the mistake. So so Matt, tell us, how does a race won by Nigel Mansell by Nigel Mansell I end know. up number was... one on your list? <laughs> this was the only time I was ever happy to see Nigel Mansell win an F1 race, and. I was partly pleased because in my head he couldn't take too much credit because it was inherited from one collision and a mistake ahead of him. And But at this point, as much as I agree Schumacher was better over the season, I thought Hill was tremendous in those last two races. I could, uh, in the moment, I thought Schumacher would be outrageous in what he did. And I thought it was it was good that Williams got at least the win at, the race win at the end, given that, given that Williams had been through that year. So I couldn't begrudge Mansell that. And I thought, oh... I hate him, but this is quite a nice story. He's allowed this one. Even even 14-year-old me was going to give him that. Also, the way, although there was no point from a title-deciding perspective watching the rest of the race, it was a great battle between Mansell and Berger, two proper veterans to the end. I like the fact that Brundle was on the podium for McLaren as well. There was a lot of kind of background driver market stuff. Mansell kind of racing for his future to a degree with the whole Williams-McLaren-David Coulthard. I was going to call it a triangle. Sounds more like a square, whatever that is, playing out in the background still. <laughs> Um, but it was, it was super tense for so long. You know, okay, not quite half the race, but with everything that season had, had meant to F1 and the teams involved, so much controversy, the tragedy as well. It's a horrible season in a lot of ways, but it was a very, very dramatic one. And all of that adding together just made it absolutely monumental for me and a really enjoyable watch as a neutral as well. Um, although in the, I said in the moment, I thought I was like, yeah, Schumacher was outrageous. A year later, and this is proper teenage logic, when I lost faith in Hill for being rubbish during 95, I rewrote this in my head and declared that Hill had been way too ambitious, lunging inside Schumacher's broken car. I should have obviously known that Schumacher was going to retire and just waited. And I, and I, I basically, in my head as a 15-year-old, decided that Hill had thrown away the 94 title entirely by himself. Slander. Um, didn't take, I had to grow up slightly to realise that opinion was complete complete nonsense but like you say Schumacher deserved it over the course of the year didn't he so it was the right outcome even if he kind of showed his not true colours because he was a lot of things that weren't a dirty driver but showed this side of his character he was fastest wasn't he but they would it, yeah. was, a, it was a dubious season if you were mm. a ben, if you happened to be a Benetton fan or a Schumacher fan it wasn't even accepting Adelaide it wasn't like everyone loves Benetton they were great it was all controversial yeah. and disqualifications and what's going on so I don't know even if even if objectively you have to say Schumacher was obviously a better driver than Damon Hill even that season's narrative like Hill would have been a worthy champion given everything Williams had been through and what was allegedly going on with Benetton so to see him lose that way I think it was it was harsh on really harsh on Damon so it can't be number one <laughs> I said earlier Ed. about like 2000 redeeming Schumacher for a few things. Actually, 95 had to redeem Schumacher for 94, didn't it? And then yeah. the Ferrari heroics in 96. And they had to start the redemption all over again after a race we're going to talk about in a minute. I think it's just a good example, this race, of how there are certain kind of points in time and moments, particularly in formative years, that just lodge themselves in your memory. You know, I mentioned earlier, if you mentioned to anyone, what's the first title decided that sort of leaps to mind this would be this one for me because it was just at the sort of the right time it's probably the first title decider that I was able to watch sort of fully properly because in terms of the last race one in terms of being fully immersed in it I probably would have I don't know I must have watched 86 Australia whether that was a replay or live I don't know but obviously 94 I can really remember that so that's got that special element for me 
for it. And I imagine that would be a thing that would sway a lot of people in what they put number one on this list. I think you have to inject a little bit of that uh, emotional side into it when it comes to this sort of debate. Yeah, this one was third for me, but it's a, the top three were really close. Uh, so I had Suzuka 89 was second, um, but there was not much in it. They're, they're great races where the, the championship uh, contenders go head to head and then it's decided by a collision. Um, we talked earlier about um, the Suzuka 89 clash being a bit rubbish. This one, despite being at least as low speed, if not lower, because Schumacher's Benetton jumps up in the air, it, it looks more dramatic. You've got that iconic image that you don't quite have. Suzuka 89's iconic image is and both sat there going, well, that was rubbish. Um, <laughs> at least you at least yes. have a Benetton up on two wheels. I do... I have massive sympathy for Hill that he just wasn't quite round the corner enough to, he didn't know what had happened. And yeah, in an alternative universe, he's aware that Schumacher's been off and I'd love to know what happens if he just sits there, just just hangs back and presumably just drives past Schumacher on the way out of the corner. I, I'm not sure because I think when Michael did this stuff, it was, it was instinctive. You know, we talked earlier about if Suzuka 90 was perhaps pre-planned, um, I don't think it was for Schumacher, but I think in moments of panic, he would do these things. So I imagine if they got round that corner, I, I can't imagine he's going, oh, I've, I've messed up the right-hand side of my car. Damon's about to come past me on the exit of the corner. I'll just swerve across him. I don't think he'd have done that. Technically, we, nev- we, don't, we never have found out for certain if he did it on purpose. I think he did. Um, so talking of Schumacher doing things on purpose, let's move on. Um, I doubt there's any of you listening now who aren't sure what uh, what our number one is from the remaining races. It is, of course, the 2001 Hungarian. No, I'm kidding. That didn't even get a point. Um, let's the 1992 uh, Hungarian. Oh no, <laughs> I, I gave that some votes. Let's check the scores. I love that race. I, I almost voted for Hungary 92 and put it number one just so I could wind Matt up. I seriously <laughs> considered it. I rewatched it and thought this was actually quite good. There's no way it's getting in my top ten. There you go. I had. I was the only person who voted for Hungary 92. I put it sixth. So um, it, it wasn't that far off uh, getting in overall. That's a, <laughs> we might as well detour now. We, we, everybody knows what number one is going to be. Hungry 92 is a really entertaining race and Mansell in a dominant car has to come back through the field and overtake a bunch of people at the Hungara ring where it's difficult. So yeah, you just it's good drama and it's a 92 race that the dominant car didn't win. So yeah, excellent race um, that we will cover uh, at some point because there was lots of uh, driver market stuff going on then as well. Anyway, let's uh, let's stop dragging out the pretend suspense and hear the decisive moment from our overall winner. Well, again, Michael Schumacher very slow, a 125.9 on that last lap. I wonder if he's got something like a slow puncture or, or some kind of gear shift problem because Villeneuve is all over him. Look, he's going he's through. Still. Oh, yes. Oh. I don't think. Out goes Michael Schumacher. That didn't work. That didn't work, Michael. You hit the wrong part of him, my friend. I don't think that will cause Villeneuve a problem. Michael Schumacher out. Now, this is a replay of the World Championship in 1994 when Schumacher and Hill had a coming together. And if Villeneuve can just keep going in the points, he's won the World Championship of 1997 because out of the race goes Michael Schumacher. He retires on lap 48. So there's our winner, and I promise it wasn't rigged. It's the 1997 European Grand Prix. Michael Schumacher tries to take out Jacques Villeneuve, 
fails and then Villeneuve slows in the closing stages to allow the McLarens of Mika Hakkinen and David Coulthard through on the final lap to claim a 1-2 as part of a deal between Williams and McLaren behind the scenes. Ben and I had this top. Uh, Matt and Ed both had it second and that was what gave it that six-point victory over Adelaide 94. So Ben, was this ever in doubt for you when you were putting your list together? No, even though... I'm a massive Damon Hill fan and didn't like Jacques Villeneuve and he becomes champion in this race. This is the title decider that has everything. It has the protagonists going at it at the front. It has the controversial collision. It has crazy drama, the qualifying dead heat the day before, the weird deal between Williams and McLaren, the not knowing if Villeneuve's car will hold together because it's been smashed. A bit like when... It only just Vettel, did hold together, didn't it? The, the battery yeah, was hanging on. Battery was hanging on. A bit like when uh, Vettel clinched the 2012 title after that first lap collision with Bruno Senna, I think it was. The car's basically in, in half and you think, is he going to get to the end? You just don't know, even though he's obviously done most of the race and it's looking okay from the outside. You just have no idea whether he's one or two corners away from complete disaster. So you don't know until he gets across, limps across the line with Coulthard streaking away and almost finishes, what, fourth, that he's definitely champion. And a decent performance from Damon Hill in the Arrows to qualify fourth the day before. So it even has Damon Hill making a cameo as doing something decent in a crap car. So a bit of everything for me. As we discussed in the Hereth 97 episode we did, Damon could have been on pole because he's he's a tiny, tiny margin behind a three-way tie. And he got balked by, I think, Katiyama spinning. Uh, coming out the final corner. So imagine if you had that three-way tie and it's for second place because Damon Hill's arrows is on pole <laughs> position. That would have been oh, amazing. That would have been incredible. Ben's right. It's, it's not the, It's not just the Villeneuve factor for me that put this in in number one. As you say, it, it's it's the drama. It's the battle. It's, it's the action. You've got all the intrigue. There's bad blood between Williams and Ferrari and McLaren get in on that as well because they don't like Ferrari either. Uh, it's cool to see Mika Hakkinen finally... Uh, win a race. Um, you mentioned Villeneuve backing off at the end. He has said since that if he'd known it was Berger right on his tail, because it was Gerhard's last race, he said he would have let Gerhard through as well <laughs> to be on the podium. And then you wouldn't have that iconic image of the McLaren drivers lifting Jack up uh, on the podium. He'd have been down in the pits somewhere um, get, getting mobbed, I think. so. There's no, there was no one else in the top six he wanted to do a favour for, was there? Because that's a slippery slope if he ends up going, oh, they're no, all you so need to go close through. by the end, aren't they? They all come <laughs> yeah. out of the corner and you watch it back and I'm thinking, don't back off too much. Like You, should, you, know, you still need to go over the line here. <laughs> yeah, Ed mentioned um, in one of the previous discussions, well, about Adelaide 94, that a lot of people would put number one, their pick would be based on emotion or nostalgia or what have you. But actually, this is... And a lot of my picks earlier in the list were based on that. But this is one I objectively think is the best title decider. All my criteria are not because I mentioned Hill doing it well, but that was a bonus, really. The reasons I put this number one are all because just objectively it has that little bit of everything. There's no emotional reason to score this number one, whether you love Jacques Villeneuve, hate him, love Damon Hill or hate him. Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. I think it does tick all those boxes so yeah if you're being kind of purely objective that would have probably put it to number one for me because it does just have 
everything and really memorable for those who are watching it in the UK. Great bit of commentary from Martin Brundle about, no, you've hit the wrong part, my friend, of, uh, of, of Schumacher turning in. So just really memorable instance as well as just these incredible storylines. And uh, we've done this on Bring Back V10s before in season three. It's well worth listening to that because you, know, you could talk about this race for hours and hours. Yeah, we could have done a much longer episode uh, when we did it. I promise you that. If you've not heard it, uh, go back and listen. We had Jonathan Williams on with us, Frank's son, and some great insider perspective on the Williams garage and everything that was that was going on. Looking at it without the Villeneuve factor for me, sat in a room surrounded by uh, Jacques <laughs> memorabilia. Um, it's yes, there's a collision, but the the aggressor in the collision, you know, the the villain of the piece doesn't win. Whereas actually when you look at all the other collisions we discuss, Schumacher in 94 causes the accident, becomes champion. Prost in 89 becomes champion. Senna in 90 becomes champion. This is the one where somebody tries to take someone out for the championship and yeah, as, as, as we heard there from Martin Brundle, it didn't work. A victory for natural justice. All of this is true. I mean, I'm not going to like slate a race. I've still put a very, very close second. I loved it at the time. The three-way tie, how well Villeneuve drove to catch Schumacher again after losing ground at the start. The Hill cameo. So much of it I, I absolutely loved. In the end, the tie break for me was how this race ended. That knocked it down to second because I found that whole Villeneuve letting everyone pass thing that possible McLaren-Williams patch. I found it a bit grubby and rubbish. At the time, as a non-Schumacher fan cheering Villeneuve on by this point, I've forgotten why I'd lost interest in Schumacher during 97, maybe just really like Villeneuve, Teenage Logic, whatever. I was loving that McLaren was ganging up in him as well. But looking back on it, I was just like, I, Hakkinen shouldn't have won his first Grand Prix like that. Mika Hakkinen is a, is a staggeringly good F1 driver. He deserved to have his first win, not be handed to him, or his second win in that weird way in Melbourne, 98 as well. I just didn't like that. I didn't really care at the time, but as time's gone on I've looked back at that race and gone I wish that bit hadn't happened I know Villeneuve's car was damaged but it was just Coulthard letting Hackenden pass as well everything felt too choreographed and as much as I love a good story and that was a good underhand strange story I just yeah something is something about that, that whole thing is if anything even more uncomfortable for me than Schumacher trying to smash Villeneuve off the road because at least that was with some kind of competitive spirit wow <laughs> so you so you rate the you rate the professional foul <laughs> as a as a yeah. as a less grubby thing than into team two team yeah the collusion and the but isn't that a common thing you know that team orders get, non-team orders do hacking in a favour I just yeah, yeah. I, maybe, maybe there's not been one so blatant but it's fairly common for teams to talk to each other get drivers out of the way especially in an era where you know, blue flags weren't, you must pass within three corners or you get penalised to yeah, death. Yeah, but those are, that's back markers, isn't it? Markers, it's not, yeah. It's not, not fighting this is like, over a well, win. Well, yeah, okay. Not fighting for the win, no. But even so, there's many examples of people just not holding up somebody because they're the title protagonist. That still happens, doesn't it? So it, it doesn't seem that abnormal to me, although it is, it is egregious. I think there was, was there a bit in the middle where, where the McLaren's kind of getting Schumacher's way a bit around pit stop strategies. I don't actually mind that as much as I mind the, and here's the win. And they were called in to stay out of Villeneuve's yeah. way as well. So that that's kind of, that's part of the reason. Part of the story. Um, the McLaren's get flipped is that their pit stop strategy was based around, yeah, either holding up Schumacher or getting out of Villeneuve's way. And that was what I think dropped Hakkinen behind Coulthard. So they were technically right, putting that right, or Ron Dennis was, 
But also, Hakkinen had lost quite a few victory opportunities that year, races he could have won on merit um, by the car letting him down. So I think McLaren wanted to put that right as well. It's interesting to wonder what would happen now in today's world if there was a similar scenario with that level, with that element of collusion. Actually, the stuff that happened earlier in the race, fine. But obviously, that someone backing off to let another team take a one-two, I don't think anyone would dare do that these days because I think the outcry would be so massive. And I think probably punishment is pretty likely for that sort of thing. Uh, so it, it tells you a little bit about how much time has changed, but it was a really, really weird ending. Although there's a certain irony to Villeneuve giving away that victory because he probably thought at that point, oh, it's all right, it's just one win. Was I got it loads more. But, I yeah, he, he, he voluntarily <laughs> gave away his last F1 victory. And to be fair, Williams haven't won so many races since that one, even in the BMW era. They, they didn't rack up dozens of wins, did they? So yeah, it's... It's a really funny ending. For me, that does add to the storyline. But yeah, it, it's not. It, it's going a little bit far doing that, I would say. Letting a whole other team win. They, I'm not going to say they're lucky to get away with it because I think you could at that time. But these days, it would be a massive deal, wouldn't it? Because it would just turn into a... It wouldn't quite be Singapore 08 level, but it would be sort of 60% of the way to that in terms of people's response. And it's not just... The, the deciding to win at the end. The stuff McLaren did earlier on, I think, would people would be outraged by that as well. So imagine, I hate talking about the 2021 title decider, not because of the outcome, but just, you know, every it's still so toxic. But imagine if you had Mercedes versus Red Bull that day in Abu Dhabi and you had you had Ferrari or McLaren or someone else going, oh yeah, it's, it's okay Sergio Perez getting involved and trying to hold up Hamilton. But imagine if another team kind of put their cars in the way just because they didn't like the another team. That would be, I think that would be almost worse than someone who's got the title in the bag going, okay, actually, I'm just going to get out of everybody's way here. Uh, and maybe there is a deal in the background. It's, it's yeah, the, the really sneaky bit in a way is, is using your cars to interfere with the championship fight. And I think I've realised over the course of how eight series of Bring Back V10s, I knew I didn't like Nigel Mansell, but the more I kind of look back at races and storylines from this era, the less I like Ron Dennis. And <laughs> something like this, where Ron Dennis could be really smug and excited about a 1-2 and Ferrari losing. And I'm just thinking, you've actually done something really dodgy here in this pact that you've made and how you've elevated hacking. And I just, I just don't like it and I resent it. Well, that seems uh, an awfully downbeat way to, to finish <laughs> discussing what we've decided was the best title decider of the V10 era. So before we call time on another series, let's run you through our collective top 10. Number 10 is the 1998 Japanese Grand Prix. Number 9 was the 1993 Portuguese Grand Prix. Number 8 was the 1999 Japanese Grand Prix. Number seven was the 1996 Japanese Grand Prix. Number six, the 1990 Japanese Grand Prix. Number five was the 2000 Japanese Grand Prix. Number four was the 1989 Japanese Grand Prix. Number three was the 2003 Japanese Grand Prix. Number two was the 1994 Australian Grand Prix. And number one, the 1997 European Grand Prix. What a great day. That was. Thanks to Ed, Matt and Ben for your votes and for explaining your reasons. If uh, if you're listening to this and want to share your own top tens, head to our Twitter community to join the debate over there. And we'll post our individual top tens as well for you to look at. 
That's it for Series 8 of Bring Back V10s. If you're part of the Race Members Club, you'll hear from us again a few times over the coming months. We will put out a couple of old bonus episodes in the main feed as well to give you a feel for some of the other things we're doing here at the race. Uh, beyond that, though, we'll see you in January for Series 9. Athletic.